Amen. All right, have a seat if you would. Uh, Welcome, everyone. We're really glad that you're with us, whether you're uh, in person, whether you're online. Uh, A lot of you are new, and we're very thankful that you're with us. Hope you've been made to feel welcome, and um, hope that you'll choose to to come back. But um, if you've got a Bible, let's go to the book of Philippians. And a couple weeks ago, uh, we started uh, walking through the book of Philippians. We're calling uh, the series Joy Invincible. And, uh, of course, Dr. Fowler was with us last week, did a fantastic job. But we're going to pick up where we left off in Philippians uh, chapter 1 and, and starting in, in, in verse 3. And we'd encourage you, uh, either in your own Bible or on the screen, to, to, to look at what God's Word says because that's what matters, not what I say. It's my job to try to help you understand and, and apply it. But... Uh, you know, we live in a world that's very me first, I think. And the reality is that each and every one of us, me included, have a battle every day, and that's with ourselves. Many times throughout the day, I have to decide if I'm going to do what I want to do or what Jesus wants me to do. Many times throughout the day, I have to decide if I'm going to put myself first or if I'm going to put others first, if I'm going to you know, think me, or if I'm going to think we. And the honest truth is, for me, and I would say you as well, is sometimes I win that battle, and sometimes I lose that battle. But I think it's a battle that we all face. Um, you know, in our sin nature, that, that's part of what having a sin nature does to us. It just... Because it says, satisfy me, you know, do what you want, indulge your flesh. And that's a very me first kind of attitude. But what we see in Scripture is, is that if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're part of his church, and so we're brothers and sisters in Christ, which means that really we're called to think we instead of me. We're called to think we instead of me. If we're honest, though, a lot when people think about the church, I don't know that that's how people perceive the church. I think in reality, there's a lot of bad headlines about the church. I mean, just article after article, uh, every week, stuff in the. I mean, I read something uh, just a couple of days ago about a church in Myrtle Beach that had basically split, like the elders and the teaching pastor decided for the teaching pastor to leave, and he resigned. But then uh, that very week, there was like an uprising uh, within the church, and by the next Sunday, the elders had resigned, and the teaching pastor was back in place. I mean, no wonder that. People are leaving the church in droves. You hear stories about uh, pastors abusing church members, uh, you know, pastors patting their own pockets. And it, at its root, all of these things are me first kind of things. Again, we're called to be we first. And really, uh, you know, throughout its history, that's what the church has been known for. It's probably. Proper to say in the middle of a pandemic that part of what propelled the church's growth early on in the Roman Empire was uh, during the plagues uh, when people were running away from the cities, often abandoning their own families. Christians were going and taking care of the sick because uh, they weren't afraid of dying. It was we instead of me. 
I, I read an article a, a couple of days ago about a helicopter pilot by the name of Joel Bowyer. And, and when you know, the flood hit in, in, in Waverly uh, recently, he had been out, I guess, with his helicopter with his fiance, and she had just qualified for her pilot's license. But he got a call from somebody he knew in Pennsylvania saying they had a family member who was in Waverly who was trapped at their house by rising waters. Could you go rescue her? And so he said, well, I'll give it a shot. And he said, I don't honestly know if I ever found this lady or not. But he said during the course of going back and flying around and spotting people and and, and touching down that he rescued 17 people. And and, and the crazy thing about it is, uh, you know, part of the reason he was doing this is because, like, the, the police, the authorities weren't flying back in to rescue people because of the situation on the ground, because of the weather, because of all the downed power lines and that kind of thing. It, it essentially wasn't even considered safe. And, and after the fact, he had to explain himself to the FAA about why he was flying in to do that. The other crazy thing about it was, he said, just a few days before that, he had prayed and asked God to give him something to do that would make his life meaningful. You talk about an answer to prayer. That's an answer to prayer. But he put himself in danger for the good of other people. He thought we instead of me. So I would just ask us, if you claim to be a follower of Christ, are you a me-first kind of Christian or a we-first kind of Christian? In your life, do you tend to think me or do you tend to think we? As a Christian, do you think, well, you know, it's just about me coming to church and uh, about me being ministered to, or do you think, is it about me ministering to other people? Because the Bible teaches us it's both. But I've met plenty of Christians over the years, and one of the things I'm thankful for is true life is different than this, but this is the fourth church I've served in, either on staff or as a pastor, and it's really not normal. Because so many Christians are like, you know, you be there for me, you help me, you minister to me, but they don't have a whole lot to offer other people. Like, but if everybody was that way, who's ever going to get ministered to? Do we think we or do we think me? And so as we look at this passage in Philippians this morning, which in a lot of ways is like, we looked at the greeting last time, and I think in a lot of ways this is like the, the introduction to the book. Because as, as we walk through the whole thing, I think you're going to see multiple themes that Paul introduces in these verses that are just kind of threads throughout the whole book that he's going to come back to again and again. But, but I just want you to notice how he addresses them and how he's thinking about them instead of himself, but we're also going to see how they're thinking about him at the same time. And, and just remember that Paul is writing this from prison. And you know, sometimes we, I think, think our life is too bad, it's too difficult, we got too many problems to try to help other people. 
when the reality is, when we've got a lot of problems and difficulties, about the most helpful thing we could ever do for ourselves is to help other people and put our minds, our thoughts on others instead of just thinking about ourselves all the time. And, and that's not only a biblical truth, but that's a psychological fact as well. So, uh, just let's approach this with the, the question, you know, am I a me first kind of person or I, am I a we instead of me kind of person? So this is what Paul writes. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. He's saying the love of Christ is in his heart for them. And then he basically records a prayer, what he prays for them. He says, this I pray, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so I want to try to answer two questions uh, in this message today. And I want these questions to kind of guide us as we unpack this scripture. And the first question would be, why live we instead of me, right? If, if our natural tendency, if what the world tells us to do is, is to live for ourselves, uh, to put me first, why would we choose to live we instead of me? And then the, the second question, which is very application-oriented, is if we choose to approach life that way, how can we live we instead of me? Okay, and, and, and I think this applies just, you know, in our families. I think it certainly applies, you know, in, in the church, but it, it applies in your, you know, work environment. I mean, what kind of person are you going to be? Are you going to scratch, claw, try to get ahead, or are you going to try to be a blessing to other people as you do your job? Um, it applies at school. You know, just going to think about yourself and, you know, your grades and all those kind of things, which is obviously important. But if you're a Christian, you're going to think about being a blessing to other people. I would encourage, uh, you know, Carson Human students, you're going to encounter some people this year that, you know, they're away from home maybe the first time they're struggling or uh, something bad happens. And, you know, don't leave them behind. You uh, be there for them. You be a blessing to them. But, but, but why would we do this? Well, really, if we're Christians, the reason is because of the gospel. Paul's rooting everything here in, in, in the gospel. Why live we instead of me? Well, first of all, it's because we are connected together uh, by the gospel. We are connected together by the, the, the gospel. Look at what he says in verse 5. He uses this phrase. He says, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And so he uses this word fellowship. 
Now, if you've been around church much at all, you've heard the word fellowship. Now, I think this is one of these words that we kind of use uh, in church that maybe we, we use it and I don't know that we fully grasp what we're talking about. Um, like, for example, I, I could say, come to the church picnic today at 2 o'clock at White Pine Park and bring a couple of dishes and bring your athletic equipment as I give a shameless plug for that. And uh, I could say, come to the church picnic and let's fellowship together. Come to the church picnic and let's have some fellowship. That'd be a common usage of that, right? Or you may have been hanging out with somebody or maybe you talked to somebody for a while uh, after church today as the uh, Ford small group has their normal after church party in here for an hour or two or however long uh, that they're here. And they could say, well, you know, at the end of it, it was good fellowshipping with you today. And that's not illegitimate uses of, of the word, but, um, you know, we often use the word as a verb when it's actually a noun. And uh, so, you know, there's expressions of fellowship. That's what that's talking about. But the word itself is a whole lot deeper than that. Literally, the word fellowship means common life or partnership or, or participation. It, it, it's, it's talking about the common life that we have together in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're in Christ, you're in fellowship with Him, you're in partnership with Him, you're connected together with Him, but at the same time, the Bible also teaches us that we're connected together with one another. We're in fellowship vertically with the Lord, we're in fellowship horizontally uh, with each other. This is who we are, it's not just something that we do. So we're connected together by uh, the gospel. And notice what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says, For he himself, talking about Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one. What's he talking about? He's talking about he's made Jew and Gentile one new humanity, so to speak, in the church as children of God. In the church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's just Christians. There's just brothers and sisters. There's just children of God. It says he's broken down the middle wall of, of separation. This was a, a reference to the Jewish temple. And, you know, there's the different courts. There's like the court of the Gentiles and the court of uh, women. And like, uh, you know, a Gentile couldn't go past the one court and the women couldn't go past the other court. Then there was a place that the priest couldn't go past. And then there's a place that only the high priest could go. He's saying Jesus on the cross broke all of that down. And each and every one of us individually and corporately together as the church have this direct and immediate uh, unfiltered access to God as one in Christ. It says he's abolished in his his flesh, the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now skipping down to verse 19, here's his application. He says, therefore, you are now no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ 
Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God dwells in us by His Spirit, but we're one in Him, Jew, Gentile, people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is the church connected together by the gospel. And that's the foundation, the root of our fellowship. So how can you read a passage like this and think that any form of racism is ever going to be an acceptable option? I mean, the gospel destroys that kind of thing. I mean, creation destroyed it to start with, but the gospel certainly does. You see, the church is this great diversity united together in Christ. That's part of what we're supposed to model to the world. And you actually see this in the church in Philippi. Now, in Acts chapter 16, we're not really going to read it. I'm just going to kind of tell you the story for time's sake. But I would encourage you, Justin Self, last July's in 2020, preached a fantastic message about the founding of the church at Philippi here at True Life. You can find it on our YouTube channel if you want to get in more detail. What I'm going to give you quickly, it's on, it's on our podcast app, True Life Church Sermons. I'd encourage you to check it out. But when you go back to Acts chapter 16, and you see Paul and Silas, and we assume that Luke would have been with them, you know, they're on this missionary journey. Timothy, it seems as though from the letter, you know, was with him. So you've got Paul formerly Saul, who had like three PhDs in uh, you know, Hebrew and Judaism and theology and all these kind of things. Uh, you've got Luke, who was a Jewish doctor. You've got Timothy, who one of his parents was a Greek, one was a Jew. And, and, and so this is kind of your missionary team. And, and when you read in Acts chapter 16, that they come to Philippi, which was in Macedonia. It was the first uh, European church that we know of. And they encounter a lady named Lydia, who was from Thyatira, who sold purple. And she was maybe a Jewish proselyte, but Thyatira was in Asia, so that was her background. And they proclaim the gospel, and, and she gets saved, she gets baptized, and she houses this missionary team in her home. She was probably rich because she was selling purple. She had a big enough house to house them. Then after that, there's a slave girl who was demon-possessed who keeps hounding them. Now, I don't have time to develop this. Justin does it in the message. But there's probably a really good chance that she was Greek in, in, in her background when you kind of piece some things together. But we assume that when, they, when Paul cast out the demon, that, that she got saved. And so here's your next convert, a, a po- probably Greek slave girl. You got an Asian rich lady. Greek slave girl, and then, uh, you know, because they cast out the demon of her, from her, the owners are mad, you know, they've lost the, the money they were gaining from her, so they have them thrown in jail, Paul and Silas, they're beaten, God does a miracle, uh, you know, the prison doors are open, and uh, the jailer's about to kill himself because he thought everybody had escaped, and, but they hadn't escaped, and so he's asking, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household, they go preach the gospel to his family, his whole family that's old enough, they get saved, they get baptized. And so I don't know what the exact time frame of this is. It, it, it seems as though it happened in pretty rapid succession. Uh, let's say within a few days, you got a church planted. 
But I want you to think about this church for a second. So you've got these brilliant Jewish guys. You've got another missionary whose background is Greek and Jewish. You've got a rich Asian lady. You've got a former Greek slave girl who was demon-possessed. And you have a jailer who would have probably been, in this past, a Roman soldier. So you've got a Roman, an Asian, a Greek, and some Jews. And that's the church. Now talk about diversity. But they were connected together, unified in Christ by the gospel. And and after all these years later, they still have this relationship with Paul. They're still going forward and ministering. They're still going forward and proclaiming the gospel. But but think about this. And and the church needs to hear this today because, uh, you know, there's so many uh, secondary things that people are splintering over. There's always stuff like this. But then you throw COVID into the mix, uh, you know, vaccine, no vaccine, mask, uh, no mask. Do I, you know, stay at home? Do I go out? And everything else that, that, that comes with that. And people argue about everything. Do you think they agreed on everything? Do you think they maybe did they agree on anything? Think about it. These new Christians from these diverse backgrounds, you know, do they have the same politics? Did they have the same philosophy? Were they from the same socioeconomic background? I mean, I could go on and on. Do, do you get the point? We're supposed to be different. But then we're supposed to, uh, in Christ, live as one, loving each other, putting each other first. And so we to the world can manifest that in Christ we can be different, but we can still be united, that we can treat each other the right way, that we can love each other. We don't have to agree on everything. And listen, when we fight about things that are insignificant, that are not biblical absolute kind of issues, we undercut our witness to the world. You know, what an amazing experience this must have been for Paul and Luke and Timothy and and, and Silas. There's nothing more exciting than first fruits in Christ. You know, I think about Mark and Becky Sonnenmeyer, two of the first people who got saved and baptized at True Life. I think about in Honduras, Adolfo. Uh, in in uh, Monte de Platino, which was the first place we were part of planting a church, and, and seeing him make his public profession of faith, and then seeing other people come to Christ uh, through them. I think about a little community named Casillas, one of the most incredible church services I've ever been in my life. It's one of these times where it's just like uh, God walked in the room, and seeing multiple adults, you know, saved in that first service, and being the seed, uh, you know, for what God is doing there. Think about what John Harrell shared with us a couple of weeks ago about a whole Muslim family uh, coming to Christ in Uganda. That's what this is about. And listen, that is the church.
church. We, we tend to focus on our own local church, which is important. Or, or we tend, and, and, and I've been guilty of this a lot in the past, and I think God's growing me in this. We're so uh, you know, United States-centered that we forget that the kingdom of God is not localized here in True Life Church. The kingdom of God is definitely not localized in the United States uh, of America, but the church of Jesus Christ is the United States and Honduras and Uganda and Afghanistan and all over the world, different, diverse, uh, but people from every tribe, tongue, language, united together in Christ. This is who we are. But I want you to see that not only are we connected together by the gospel, I want you to see that we're partnered together for the gospel. We're partnered together for the gospel. Look at what Paul says in, in, in verse 7. He says, Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. What's he saying? He's saying we're in this together. We're, we're ministering together. We're, we're serving together. We're, we're, we're sharing the gospel together. Listen, if we know the good news of Jesus Christ, we believe the good news of Jesus Christ, how can we keep it to ourselves? I mean, that's about the biggest contradiction that you'll ever find. Because, listen, if you're saying you're a Christian, what you're saying is that I am so sinful that it took the Son of God dying for me, for me to be saved. That, that I was headed to hell and I had no hope, but by the grace and mercy of God, uh, that God intervened, and God pulled me out of the fire, and God made me his own, and, and, and this is what he's done for me, and this is what you need, but I'm not going to tell you about it. How can we say we're connected together by the gospel, but then not partner together for the gospel? You know, what he's talking about here a little bit more specifically is, if we could look ahead to chapter 4 and verse 15, he, he explains it. He says, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. In other words, he was saying, you know, a lot of churches have taken ministry from me, but you're one of the few that have supported me that have worked together with me, that, that we have partnered together in the gospel. And to understand, we, we need to see that even when it comes to our mission, the Great Commission, that that's not a me thing, that's a we thing. You know, I think so many Christians expect like their pastors or their deacons or their church to do it for them when realizing it's all of us together. It's all of us together. Tuesday, well, in life, do you ever have these moments that it's just like it's a roller coaster? Like, you're up here, you're blessed with something, and then something happens that's like down here. And, um, you know, I think in today's world that probably happens a lot. 
But uh, Tuesday, I had the blessing, one of the greatest blessings you can have, of being in the room when Jesus saved somebody. And um, as I was walking him out of the building so he could leave, or, or after I walked him out, I went in Jessica, my assistant's office, to retrieve my phone. And uh, when I looked at my phone, the first text that I saw on there was from William Burton, who's a longtime friend, and he's the, uh, uh, I don't know what his title is, the leader of church planning for the Tennessee Baptist Convention. And basically what the text was saying is that a mutual friend of ours had died from COVID. And um, somebody that's meant a lot to both of us. And he texted me later in the week to say his wife had also died uh, of COVID. And uh, his mom, their son, uh, both had it. I think one of them's been in the hospital as well. But uh, the, the man's name, and this name won't mean anything to most of you. I don't know. There might be a couple of you who have been around since uh, almost the very beginning of True Life that the name may mean something to you. But his name's Fred Davis. And uh, Fred was my mentor in church planning. He's the one who trained me how to be a church planner. Um, you know, I never anticipated being a church planner when I was in seminary. So we came back here to start True Life without really any prior training. I, you know, he, he's the one who made our presentation to the Tennessee Baptist Convention for financial support. And they gave us more funding than, they, than had ever given a church uh, up to that time. And... Um, you know, I know that true life is a church because it's God's will. He's brought it about. I mean, that's what verse 6 is telling us. But, you know, in God's sovereignty, he ordains not only the ends but the means. And part of his means for true life being planted was a ministry of Fred Davis. It's we, it's not me. You know... I don't feel like I can do this without our elders. I appreciate them so much. You know, we're a whole lot smarter together than I am on my own. We, got, we like got a whole brain to work with, with all four of us together. You know, some of the stuff we're doing in missions right now, a lot of the stuff we're doing in missions, what's happening in Uganda, it's not me. I've had almost nothing to do with that. It's John Harrell. A lot of the things we've done in missions over the years, the fact that I've been able to go to Honduras 40 times and write curriculum for seminary and that kind of thing, it's because we have awesome small group leaders who are ministering uh, to people day in and day out. It's not me, it's we. We're partners together in the gospel. In the gospel. Even the whole thing with Honduras, I, we don't look at us as us you know, going trying to minister to Honduras anymore. We see ourselves as partners together in the gospel. They're doing the work. Work. And that's why it's spreading to Guatemala. Why it has spread to Guatemala. It's why it's spreading to Costa Rica. It's why it's spreading uh, to Nicaragua. Hopefully to Colombia. It's because we're partners together in the the gospel, and the gospel is for the whole world. And the whole church is uh, connected together in the gospel. We are in fellowship together. But number three, I want you to see here. As far as these convictions, as far as why um, think, live, we instead of me, is that we're secure together in the gospel. We're secure together in the gospel. Look again at verse 6. He says, being confident of this very thing. We all need a good dose of spiritual confidence sometimes, I think. 
being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of, of Jesus Christ. Uh, Moises Silva says, Theologians who speak of salvation as being God's from beginning to end are not using mere rhetoric, for this is precisely Paul's conception as he addresses the Philippians regarding their share in the gospel. Here's what he's saying. Uh, you know, in, in the beginning of salvation, what was the beginning of your salvation? The beginning of your salvation was before time began. The Father chose you. You didn't choose him. We're elected. We're pre Predestined, and then through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the Holy Spirit does a work in our hearts, a work of regeneration, of drawing us to Christ. And then once we trust Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us, and He's always going to be with us, and He's now sanctifying us. And then someday, you know, in the day of Christ, when Jesus comes back, or when we die, He's going to take us to heaven, He's going to glorify us. In other words, God is going to finish what He started. This is our spiritual confidence. It doesn't ultimately depend on us. It depends on him and what he's done for us. Listen, my spiritual confidence is not in how well I hang on to Jesus. It's in how perfectly he's hanging on to me. Uh, that is our hope. If I had to keep myself saved, it would have lasted about 37 seconds. He is the all in all, the end in the beginning. And so based on this, Kent Hughes writes practically, Paul was assuring the Philippians that the work of the long-term fellowship of the gospel that God had begun in them will be brought to glorious consummation when Christ returns. Though Paul was in prison, he was absolutely confident that the good work of their gospel partnership would succeed gloriously. So, Individually, we can be confident that he's holding on to us. You know, as a church, we can be confident, just like with the Philippian church, that God's going to finish what he started. He's going to bring about what he's purposed for us. Why is there a true life church? Because God purposed it and brought it about. Why is God using true life today? Because God has purposed it and, and brought it about. Why is he going to continue to do that until he's finished with us? Because he's purposed it and, and, and brought it about. And, and I'll be honest with you, I needed that reminder this week. Um, you know, it, it's hard to lead anything during COVID. I mean, there's so much unknown, so much uncertainty, so many decisions. Obviously, you don't want uh, people to be sick. You don't want to do anything uh, that's unsafe. But at the same time, you know, we're not epidemiologists. Our missions are to, mission is to be proclaimers of the gospel uh, of, of Jesus Christ. And, um, you know, I hate COVID. I, I hate that my friend Fred Davis died this week, this past week, of COVID. But there are other problems in the world than COVID. And there are worse things than just dying of COVID. Fred's in heaven now. There's people dying of COVID and other things that are going to hell. That's our job. I mean, people can make dis dis informed decisions about how they handle this at, at this point. Um, but we've got a job to do, church. But there's a weight to that, and there's a, there's a concern to that. And, I, and I'll just be honest with you. And you know, when all this started, I got a little panicky. And that's even, I mean, I'm talking about back to March last year. And that's even with the, the, the dumb thought of going into it, obviously, in hindsight. Uh, this will last for a few weeks, maybe a few months. And, uh, but, it, but at the same time, it's just like, you know, how are we going to make it through this? And so, obviously, it's been a whole lot worse than I anticipated. But you know what? The church has done a whole lot better. 
than I would have thought. I mean, if I'd have known it was going to last this long, I'd have probably been in a corner somewhere sucking my thumb in, in, in a fetal position. But you know why the church has done better, why the church has thrived, even through all of this disruption? It's because of Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know what this means personally for us, I think? It means that we can be secure And we can be secure enough to be real with other people, that we can draw close to other people, live in fellowship with other people, instead of pushing people away, knowing that, yeah, I'm imperfect, I'm a sinner, but I'm still accepted by Jesus Christ. And knowing that he's doing a work in me, and knowing that I haven't arrived yet, but someday he's going to complete that good work. You know, I think a lot of times we know we need other people, and maybe deep down we want other people. But there's things that we struggle with that cause us to put on masks and to keep other people at a distance. And, you know, that's the most harm, one of the most harmful things that we can ever do. We need each other. It's kind of like this. Friday afternoon, evening, I was driving home from the gym. And Rob and my wife called me. And she was making fish tacos for dinner, which is always a good thing. And she said she needed some tortilla chips to go with what she was making uh, for dinner, which included mango salsa. She's the best cook in the world. But, so she wanted me to stop where we live in Talbot. There's like a, a Dollar General store literally at the front of our neighborhood, which is handy. It's like, you know, you stop at DG and pick up some tortilla chips. And I'm like... Sure, no problem. Except the only problem was I'd made a couple mistakes that day in going to the gym. Uh, one is I, I, instead of wearing like, uh, you know, some kind of a shirt with some kind of fabric that kind of absorbs water, I wore this heavy T-shirt that just kind of held it in, and I sweated a lot, and I was drenched in sweat. And mistake number two, probably the bigger mistake, is I had not brought a shirt with me to change uh, into. And, I mean, it was bad. I literally stunk. And so she wanted me to go into DG, and uh, I was not looking all that pastoral uh, at, at that moment. And, you know, I don't know if that matters, but, you know, when sometimes, you know, it's, it's a little weird when you're, you know, a pastor, you go out in public, people recognize you, you don't know them. So I thought, hmm, what can I do here? Well, you know, I keep some disposable mask in my car in case I'm in a situation where there's a, a, a need. So I, I decided to go into DG. Uh, about 10% COVID-related and about 90% uh, trying to hide my identity-related because I had a baseball cap. So I decided I would go into Dollar General wearing my baseball cap and my mask since I was drenched in sweat and I stunk. And so, you know, going to DG and there's maybe half a dozen people in there at least, you know, that I could see. There's three or four people in line because, you know, just grabbing some chips, getting in line. Fortunately for them, everybody was socially distanced, so I hope the next lady in line cannot smell me. Uh, But, uh, you know, I've got my identity hidden. I'm socially distanced, and, uh, you know, hopefully nobody knew who I was. And, you know, that's kind of funny maybe, but I think uh, really it's how a lot of people live their lives. With mask on at a distance from people because we don't know, want people to know who we really are. But if we're in Christ and the gospel is true, why do we need to hide who we are from our brothers and sisters in Christ? If the gospel's true, 
and we're connected together in Christ, and we're all works in progress, saved by the grace of God, that He's going to finish that work someday, why do we need to hide from each other? Listen, we're connected together by the gospel. We're partnered together for the gospel. And we're secure together in the gospel. So, so what do we do with that? How, how do we live this out? How does this affect our lives? And how then can we live out, if this is true, we instead of me? So I've spent most of my time just on the gospel. And, you know, it's, it's, again, it's who before do, build that conviction into us, hopefully. Let me just spend the last few minutes on what do we do with this. So. I think he tells us three things here. Number one in verse three. We live this out. We live out we instead of me by thanking God for each other. Notice again verse three. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. How often do you pray, do you thank the Lord for your brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, how much do we think, thank him in general? I mean, if I'm honest, sometimes you know, I ask God for stuff, he does it, and I just move on like he never did it. Um, you know, there's, there's a question that's asked in Master Life that I think we should all think about a little bit. It's this question. What if God only gave us tomorrow what we thanked him for today? What if God only gave us tomorrow what we thanked him for today? Number two, we live out we instead of me by praying for each other. Again, in verse four, he says, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy. And then in verses 9 through 11, he actually spells out this prayer. And I think we could use this prayer and pray it for each other. He says, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. So he's praying that their love for God and for each other would grow. But true love is couched in knowledge and discernment because love is more than a feeling. Love is connected to doing the right thing. We talked about this earlier this summer. To do the right thing is to do the loving thing. To do the wrong thing is to do the unloving thing. And so he's praying their love would, would just overflow. That's really what abound means, but it would happen in knowledge and discernment. He prays also, he says, the first phrase of verse 10, that you may approve the things that are excellent. This means that they would be able to know and live by the right priorities. The next phrase of verse 10 says that you may be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. He's saying, he's praying that they would live genuinely and with integrity. In verse 11, he says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus. He's praying that through Christ indwelling in us, that in him controlling us, that our lives would produce the fruits of righteousness. And then he says that all of this would be to the glory and praise of God. So he's praying that through the work of God in them, that God would receive glory. We pray that for each other. But then number three, we live out we instead of me by how we treat each other. Look again in verse 7. He tells them, you're on my mind and you're in my heart. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, it's what he says at the beginning. Uh, because I have you in my heart. You're on my mind and you're in my heart. Do you think about other Christians? He, he says in, in, in verse 8 that he longs with them for the affection of Jesus Christ. He's saying the love of Christ is in his heart toward them. And of course the Bible tells us how can we say that we love God whom we haven't seen if we hate our brother who we have seen. 
If we're saved, the love of Christ for other people, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, is going to be in, in our heart. But then last, the love of Jesus is expressed by my actions. He says, you're partakers together with me of grace. It might change my defense of the gospel. We, we talked about that earlier. So, in other words, don't just think about each other, but do something about it. As Craig Rochelle says, if you think something good, say it. If you have an opportunity to do good, do it. You know, one of my regrets, I talked about Fred earlier. You know, I had intended to call him after we were blessed earlier this year with being able to pay off our debt and let him know about that. I never got around to doing it. You know, do good when we have a chance to do good. What do we do for other people? So let me close with this. Uh, A lot of you are new, but it would not matter how many Sundays um, you've been at True Life This would have been the first time that anybody would have ever seen me preach in pink-ish pants. (laughs) And the elephant in the room may be, some of you have not heard anything I've said today because you've been sitting there thinking the whole time, why is he wearing these pants? Now, I don't know exactly what color they are because I'm male, number one, and, you know, my knowledge of colors never got beyond the uh, kindergarten crayon box. Uh, I've been told there's salmon. Somebody at the end of the first service told me they're Nantucket red. Um, uh, This does not look like red to me, but whatever. So the reason I'm wearing these pants is that Monday was my birthday, and I think it was the week before, someone had anonymously left these in my office. So I'm playing along, and I think that whoever it is should reveal himself at this point. or at least after the service. Was it you, Walt? Yeah, you're looking guilty. Look, you're looking guilty back there. You can come to the altar and repent after the service. But uh, so, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I, they look okay? Okay. You think I should wear them again? Okay, we'll, we'll see. Uh, so, uh, thank you for the gift, Walt. Um, but... Um, I have to say that um, this was not the best birthday present that I got, okay? Uh, I mean, salmon, Nantucket red, pink pants are awesome, but, you know, it's not been my lifelong dream to preach in salmon pants. But uh, So I got another gift, though. So last Sunday, in between the services, Molly, my daughter, and Nate, her husband, came and got me and said, hey, we need to talk to you. And uh, this is what COVID does to you because I'm usually very positive, but I'm like, uh oh, what's wrong? And somebody just find out they've been exposed to COVID or something like that uh, during the first service. But they, they take me down to the multipurpose room on the other end of the building, and their entire small group, we've got like a, a, a small group uh, of, of newlyweds, of young couples, were waiting down there for me to tell me happy birthday and, and, and to give me a gift. And, um, one of my favorite preachers is Craig Rochelle. Uh, you know, there's a joke that I quote him a lot. And so this is Craig Rochelle's latest book, uh, Winning the War in Your Mind. But this book has, if you go a couple pages in, has actually been signed by Craig Rochelle with a note to me. So 
these young couples, I mean, all of them, uh, are, I think, are in their 20s. You know, I've done three of their, their weddings. And, of course, you know, one of them is my daughter and uh, very favorite son-in-law. Um, and, um, but they knew I liked him. And, and so this is what they did. They, they contacted Life Church, which is the largest church in the United States. It said, if we buy this book, is there any chance Pastor Craig would uh, sign it for our teaching pastor? He means a lot to us, and we want to do something special for him on uh, his birthday. And um, they topped that, which says a lot about them and how they do things and how they care for people. They didn't sell them the book and get him to sign it. They gave them the book, and there's like a workbook and a nice box that goes with it. He signed it. They paid for the shipping and sent it for these random people that they don't know from anybody, and I'm sure they have plenty to do uh, you know, for their plate uh, to be full. So that's meaningful to me. But you know, for these young couples you know, to think about me in this way and to go to this trouble, and they all gave me cards, and probably the, the cards that they wrote are more meaningful than even you know, getting the, the book signed. That's living we instead of me. And there's something that we can learn from young couples in that. And the point of this is, and I'm not looking for a gift. I don't need any more salmon pants. But uh, the point of this is, do we care about each other? Do we think about each other? Do we have each other in our hearts? And if we are, let's thank God for each other. But let's thank each other. Let's love each other. Let's show each other some appreciation. Uh, let's partner together in the gospel. Let's pray for each other because it is each other. We're one in Christ. Uh, we're in this fellowship together through the gospel. And the gospel is not just uh, you know, an individual. It's not just a personal thing. You may have heard that a lot. The gospel is a corporate thing. Our relationship with Christ, yes, it's personal. Yes, only you can be born again. But we're born again into the community of the saints. And we need each other. And listen, when things are tougher in the world... And it sure seems like everything's falling apart right now, although it's not really, because he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Or where things are falling apart in your life, the worst thing you can ever do is withdraw into yourself. That's when you need other people the most. When you need them to pour into you, but, when you, but you also need to pour into other people. Because one of the things, listen, Paul is writing this letter from prison. And 15 times in, in 104 verses, he uses some form of the word joy. How did he have this joy in prison? Part of the way he had it is because he wasn't all focused on himself. And he wasn't all focused on his circumstances. And he wasn't all looking inward. But he was focused on other people. And he was blessing them, and they were blessing him. And the thing about it is, in Christ, when we live in fellowship together, it lessens our burdens, and it multiplies our joys. And this is how God has designed the church, and it's how he's designed the Christian life. We back.